nope, we're done. We're done. <laughs> we're finished with the claps. Oh man. Get the heck out of town, boy. Uh listener, welcome to this week's episode of the 13th Floor Podcast. Ooh, spooky. It's not spooky today. I mean, th- there are some weird things we're talking about today, but they're not spooky. <laughs> okay. Oh, James is gonna James, mine's not spooky. I guess that's what I should mine's, say. Uh, mildly. Well, spooky. if you have uh, is it a thalassophobia, fear of the ocean, then mine will mine will creep you out. I gotta look that up. Thalassophobia. Oh, exciting. I feel like that's uh, the right word. Well, seaphobia. Well, James looks that up. I'm gonna I'm gonna thank all of you guys for listening to the 13th Floor Podcast. We're talking about things that are weird, strange, and fun. Today we're talking about secrets of the sea, a topic suggested to us by Nick Yu. So, Nick, I know you're listening. Thank you for the topic. If you have any more, send them to us. Yeah. Yeah. And listeners, if you have topics for us, you can also send those to us at the 13th Floor Podcast Instagram at 13th Floor Podcast. You can send those. That, that's where you can talk to me. If you want to talk to James, you can talk to him on Facebook. And Alex is... Uh, physically and emotionally unavailable to everybody. <laughs> so you can't talk to him anywhere. Yeah. Speaking of physically and emotionally unavailable, I've got our icebreaker today. Oh, oh, oh God. Yeah. Uh-oh. Good theory. Uh, would, would, yeah. would you rather die from hypothermia or hyperthermia? Uh, um, I, oh, man. <laughs> I swear to God. I thought for sure you all would say that's stupid, and then you all would throw out a question. Oh, man. I actually really like your icebreaker, but mine's more relevant to the topic. I'm not kidding. I really want us to reuse that one. Okay. Okay, we'll reuse that. You guys. You can can listen to our answers to that one in a future episode of 13th Floor. James, what is your icebreaker? Okay. Like, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with this really cheesy show called Aquanauts, or no. Sea lab, something like that. It was under the ocean. That's the bottom line. Well, it got me thinking. Uh, you know, a lot of people have thalassophobia. I was missaying it, but it was the right word. A lot of people don't like the idea of being in the ocean. A lot of people don't like the idea of being underwater. And a lot of people don't like the Amen. idea of. Well, yeah, that's this is my question here. Um, there's been a lot of attempts. Uh, it's so far been very utopian to make settlements on or under the ocean. If if that ever happened, like let's say, you know, pollution got too bad or, or the economy got too bad or, you know, something happened and they were like, come on, let's all move into the ocean. Would you? Mm. Oh, James, that is a toughie. Mm. That sure. is an interesting. I would rather move into the ocean than move to Mars, but I think that I might be a little scared. Uh. <laughs> I, I would totally go. Yeah, that'd be, yeah. That'd be awesome. Uh, I mean, you know, it depends on what kind of apocalyptic scenario we're facing above ground, but underwater doesn't seem too bad. I mean, if we're building settlements down there, then you feel like maybe most of the dangers have been at least like figured out. Well, not necessarily figured out. It's the sea. The place is horrifying, but (laughs) (laughs) it's Australia, but underwater and (laughs) So there's always going to be things you don't expect, but, you know, I would feel like if there's a settlement, it's got a relatively safe foundation. Right. That's, you know, this is the thing with me. I would need to know what food we're going to have in the settlement because 
I do not like fish. I uh, have to get over that. I was about I to say, there's not going to be any like deep sea cows. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be that would be my problem. It's like I either die above ground or I die of starvation mm. under the sea. All I can picture now is like a little cow with a snorkel. <laughs> James, James, I think I know your your answer would yeah. be yes in a heartbeat. Yep, in a heartbeat. Sounds flipping cool. Um, yeah. it, it's very, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I love that book. Oh, man. That'd be great. <laughs> we wouldn't even need a scenario like that. I would do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Until we're able to get James to Mars, he would totally go under the sea. Yeah. I'm a maybe. Alex is a sure. Why not? Death by mm. water or death by suffocation. James is all for it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Alright, well, you guys... That's our icebreaker. Um, did you guys have any exciting life news you wanted to mention before we hop on into the topic? Well, just to let people know, because I reference him a lot. Yeah, I mean, really, it shocks me how much I talk about him. Slater the Isopod has passed away at the age of four, so he was twice as old as they're supposed to be. And this episode is dedicated to Slater the Isopod. And also, I'm going to talk about isopods in a little bit, so just kind of a heads up. Little spoiler. Oh, there. Slater. Sorry, to hear that, James. Yeah, thank you. Did you cry? No. 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 In the arms <laughs> of the angels. Oh man. Well, how is Cadaver dealing with the the loss? Uh, not great. I'm actually looking for a mate for her now because of it. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I know. Well, rebound. Keep, yeah, rebound. <laughs> keep us, keep us updated on Cadavera. Maybe we'll post. I don't think we've ever posted a picture of Cadavera to the Thirteenth Floor yeah. podcast Instagram. So There's send me thought. one of those, James, and I'll let everybody know what Slater and Cadavera look like. Yeah, yeah, look good. like things you would find in Australia or in the sea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Slater's kind of cute, but yeah, well, Slater was. Yeah, rest in peace. Yeah, R.I.P. Slater. Um, okay, so James is going to kick us off today. Yeah. He is talking about the sea under the sea and uh, underwater gigantism? Uh, abyssal gigantism. Close. Ab- abyssal gigantism. Yeah, go, much here. go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing to me, the ocean. Not just because, you know, most of the planet is the ocean, but it's a weird place and... In terms of scale, it's difficult for us to wrap our heads around it. Like, I've, you, you've seen all the infographics showing how big other planets are and how big other stars are and how it makes the Earth seem insignificant. But we have something like that here that makes us, if we think about it, feel insignificant. And in fact, we know more about space than we do about the ocean. That's mm. how massive, complex, difficult to reach and diverse the ocean is. And there's a lot of misconceptions about the size of things just because of that. Uh, just in terms of the overwhelming depth, it's it's nuts. Like, it really is. Like, the Challenger Deep, the deepest part of the ocean, like when you, when you get down further, it's 3,800, no, it's, it's more than that. It's, uh, yeah, that's right. It's like 30,000 or 10,000 meters. Dang. What is wrong with me? I'm really bad with numbers. <laughs> it's almost 11,000 meters. It is mm. insanely deep. The deepest ocean drilling we've ever gone is about 2,000 meters less than that. Uh, wow. Yeah, and 9,000, here's, here's some the way to sort of put it into scale. 
your average cruising altitude for a plane above the air is only 9,000 meters. So, yeah, exactly. It, the, the ocean goes down further than our planes typically cruise at. And yet, even though 90% of, of oceanic life is in the coastal areas and the reef areas, there's still life down there. And as a result, this is where we're getting to abyssal gigantism. Whenever you have an environment where you have cold temperatures, food scarcity, and not a lot of predators, you tend to get bigger creatures. Something similar happens in the ocean, or in the ocean, on islands. Uh, now, islands are warm, but there's not a lot of predators, and there's a very limited amount of food, and it creates a scenario where animals benefit from being bigger. Well, the further down you go, the, the same kind of evolutionary pressures start adding up. And in addition, it's also cold. And we know that, you know, in colder environments, bigger is usually better, too, because there's, you know, less uh, of an issue with surface area heat loss. That's why, like, rodents mm -hmm. lose heat a lot quicker than, say, a dog. Uh, and as a result, a lot of animals in the deep sea are big. And one of the reasons I kind of wanted to cover this is, one, it's terrifying. <laughs> and two, <laughs> a lot of people don't realize how big things get down there. I mean, there's the generic uh, giant squid, which I'm going to touch on in a, in a little bit. But a lot of things people don't really consider how big they are. Like, look, I'll give you a great example. When I saw uh, Finding Nemo, I was a little surprised to see little Nemo and little Dory running away from uh, a deep sea anglerfish. Now, I, go, I get it. It's a Pixar movie. But how big is an anglerfish? Right. Uh, just... Just give me a guess, you two. How, how big do you think an anglerfish is? They get pretty big. They get pretty big. They They're are pretty big. Yeah, it, it would not even notice Dorian Marlin. It would not notice a clownfish and a uh, blue tang. They're about the half the size of your average mm. bed. These, They're huge. Yeah, oh, wow. anglerfish are big. They're fishing for creatures the size of Louise. <laughs> <laughs> it blows my mind. That's one thing that I didn't realize until I started looking into this topic was like seeing pictures of them versus other creatures. And yeah. it did. It's like when you watch Finding Nemo, it makes it seem like it's pretty small. Yeah. But it's not. I always thought they were small. Yeah, no. exactly. People tend to think so. And of course, there are lots of different anglerfish and lots of different uh, viper fish. That's a common one, wolf fish. But the ones that are down deep, they're, they'll eat a mattress. You know, they're huge. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And additionally, down there, you've got all these big cephalopods. You've got the, the Japanese spider crab, which is, you know, it can stand Ew. up taller than a person. Uh, and, of course, this is where I was making a reference to. There's giant isopods, which for whatever reason have gotten really popular like the past two years. Like they've been around <laughs> for, for millions of years, but only the past two years have people really gotten into them. There's like plushes now and. Like, for some reason, Japan absolutely loves them. Um, you've got just the other thing that's odd about the deep sea. And, and it, it's, it's funny. We fantasize about life beyond the stars. But you look at the animals in the deep sea. They're as alien as, as anything. Uh, you know, viper fish and pelican eels. My God, have you seen a pelican eel? What the heck is a pelican eel? A pelican right, eel hat it's an is an eel a, with a pelican's face. Sort of. <laughs> it's an eel with a big, <laughs> its lower jaw is attached by like the tiniest little hinge and it swallows things that are significantly bigger than Ooh. it. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
fang teeth. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I have seen these. These yeah, are horrifying. Right? Yeah. It uh, looks like something out of a movie. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Star Trek can't do justice to the things that we have on our planet, especially when you go down deep enough. Megamouth sharks and, and oh, frilled sharks. I remember one time a frilled shark had, uh, it was dying was what the deal was. Whenever these deep sea creatures wash ashore, and this is where all these sea monster stories probably come from these monsters every now and again from down deep they they get sick and they start to die and uh in their confusion they they swim up and the pressure is tends to be fatal for them well this frilled shark i remember it was i think off the coast of japan uh to see one in in the shallows like that it looked like a dragon had just decided to come pay japan a visit which why not and (laughs) <laughs> I remember people were, were losing their minds because it was captured for study and people were like, I can't believe they would do that. And it's like, no, that thing's dying. These things don't come up to where we live unless something's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, that frilled shark was, was fascinating. And also things tend to live a long time when they go down deep. Theoretically, some people actually think Greenland sharks might live forever because people have caught a few of those and they've been centuries and centuries old, you know, 400, it's 500 bananas years. how old they are. Yeah. Well, do you think, do you think that it's possible that they live longer because there just aren't as many predators down there? That's a lot of it. And then also whenever you're in a cold environment, it's important to point out, I think I've actually talked about this before about the difference between homeotherms and poikilotherms. Like we're homeothermic. We're the same temperature. Everybody listening in on us, they're in the ballpark of 98 degrees Fahrenheit. But poikilotherms are the temperature of their environment and their metabolism reflects that. And so, you know, for us, our metabolism is pretty steady our whole lives. But for a deep sea creature, because they are poikilothermic, because their metabolism matches their temperature and because the deep sea is so cold and resource scarce, their metabolism is going to be quite a bit slower too. And that could play a a pretty big role in their lifespan. Hmm. And then, of course, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by the the deep sea and by giant squid. And I remember in science class, we were learning about this theoretical animal called a colossal squid. And it was it was going to be so (laughs) much bigger. And it was only based on a few like bits and pieces found in a whale's stomach back in like the 20s. But it was theoretical. And I thought, wow. I mean, I absolutely thought well, it's probably real and it's amazing. And I would just think about how big it must be. And now, you know, 2003, they found a whole one. And sure enough, it's mm-hmm. shorter than a giant squid by a little bit. It's, it's not as, as long, but in terms of mass and width, it is a monster. It's the biggest invertebrate that we've found so far. It is enormous. And just thinking that a full specimen and not even a big full specimen had been discovered in 2003 it shows how little we know about our ocean and that's the 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 segue into the second part of what i'm talking about because in south america they discovered this was pretty recent this was in the 2000s they discovered a brown diamond it is the ugliest brown diamond i've ever seen and it fetched a whopping 20 dollars because it just looks like a big old hunk of aluminum. <laughs> Ugliest flipping diamond I've ever seen. But that's not what's interesting about it. When they dug up this diamond, they found a 
very odd substance that has since been named wood ringite, wood ringite, because it resembles the rings that you see in trees. And what was odd about this wood ringite is that it was 1% water. Now, that alone seems kind of odd just because, I mean, how many gemstones contain water? None. Right. <laughs> and also, 1% may not sound like much, but if you have a lot of it, it's going to hold a lot. And it just so happens to be something that's made by volcanoes. And our ocean uh -oh. floor is riddled with volcanoes that erupt and cool, erupt and cool, creating this wood ringite. This alone has led scientists to conclude, and this was a study in 2014, that there is likely a lot more water than we realize between the inner and outer mantle of the planet. And there's two possible forms that this could take. And this is something that uh, geographical surveys and geological surveys have concluded time and time again. And that is either we have a whole bunch of wood ringite under the Earth's crust, really further down deep than that, between the inner and outer mantle, and it holds more water than the oceans combined, in which case, if it was ever liberated, we would end up with something that every civilization has talked about, which is a flood that would cover all the land on the planet for an extended period of time. In which case, if you have thalassophobia, good luck, because the world's an ocean now. <laughs> the other possibility is that between the inner and outer mantle, there is an ocean larger than all the other oceans in the world combined. And we mentioned before in one of our first episodes the, the possibility of this. And we hypothesized that maybe life could exist down there. And if it did, assuming how much further deep that is, how much colder, how much scarcer resources are. If abyssal gigantism in our oceans, the ones that we're familiar with, is applicable, then whatever's down there would be like H.P. Lovecraft level massive. It would be like Cthulhu stuff. It would be Godzilla stuff. It would be things yes. so alien that it really should be on another planet because between the inner and outer mantle, that's not really, it's on Earth. But the environment is so vastly different from anything we would ever be familiar with that any traits that these organisms would have, it would, it would actually make Europa seem more, more reasonable to life on the surface. That's how outlandish <laughs> it would be. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, hmm. it's astonishing to think about. It's really scary to kind of think about this big, deep sea that goes way, 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 way past the Challenger Deep. Shout out to James Cameron. But, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's just it's staggering to consider that we know more about space than our own oceans and that even further, there's some potential for an alien world far beneath our feet that we've, we've literally evolved alongside and just never discovered, never seen yet. It's surprising that things get so big when there's such scarce resources, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's sort like of part of... You would think of, that they would need more resources the bigger they are. You would think. And, and it's an interesting paradox because this is how it kind of works, Alex. It's a weird like arms race thing. It's like, in order to get food, I need to be big. But right. in order to get big, I need food. But that means I really need food. So I need to get big. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you end up with a situation. And the same thing happens on islands. There's a reason why the Galapagos tortoises don't live in Minnesota. Because, well, not just that, it's also flipping cold in Minnesota, but you get what I mean, is when you have scarce yeah. resources, there's an incentive to outgrow your neighbors so mm -hmm. you can get those resources and they starve. 
I, I, I watched the movie The Meg, and it dealt with this. Yeah. <laughs> Alex is actually when we when we d- pulled this topic out of the vase last week. Alex said, "I'm going to talk about the Meg." <laughs> but it was when I was considering something like yours, James. But uh, you did much more justice than that. Well, well, yes, you, you did. Appreciate that. Uh, I'm done, James. Huh? Thank you for talking to us about uh, the ocean under the ocean. I and- miss the days where you used to go, James. Thank you for sharing. Well, we're going to go from talking about gigantic creatures to talking about little tiny creatures. Mm. And that's where I come in. Uh. Okay, you guys. Where did I get my research today? Uh, National Geographic, New York Times, and Ocean Conservancy. Yes. Yes, I can read. (laughs) Today, I am talking about the immortal jellyfish. Ooh. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad you guys are excited to hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I know that James probably already knows everything there is to know about the he immortal jelly. <laughs> yeah, he probably does. He has one in his bathtub. Yeah. The jig is up. I am one. <laughs> <laughs> James is just Benjamin buttoning. <laughs> <laughs> when next time we see him, he's going to look like he's 12. Okay. <laughs> So, <laughs> his head will be the same size. <laughs> <laughs> so, the immortal jellyfish, aka Turritopsis dorini. Mm. I think that's how you say it. Again, sounds it's right. science. So, yeah, it sounds right. Uh, but this specific jellyfish can Benjamin button his way out of any situation. <laughs> And then grow, and and then he can Benjamin button himself again. Nice. Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. wild. He could do it literally. So this little tiny jellyfish, it's the size of your pinky thumbnail. That's about as big as they get. But when they're under, what? yeah, they're very tiny. That's why I said James is talking about big things. I'm talking about little things. I didn't know it was that little. This though. little tiny weeny beanie hmm. jellyfish. Weenie beanie jellyfish. <laughs> 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 I first heard about the immortal jellyfish when I was watching Octonauts with our daughter. Because mm-hmm. they have a whole episode about the the immortal jellyfish. Which is where most of her research actually came yeah, from. Yeah, actually came from. No. <laughs> well, when I saw it, I thought to myself, there's no way that this thing is real. Like, this is just a fake episode. They made up something for this episode. And then, like, I actually looked into it. And no, these things are totally real. Yeah. This is the third time we've brought up that show. They need to sponsor us. They really do. Yeah, they, yes. they should. We'll reach out to them. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if it's still going. Give us a but, call. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Turritopsis dorini was first discovered in the Mediterranean Sea in 1883, but nobody back then knew that they could age backwards. Mm. So that was mm. discovered more recently. I found some differing reports. Some people say that it was discovered in the 1980s, and some people say it was discovered in the 1990s. But we do know that a marine biologist student named Christian Som- Somner summer was he was collecting hydrozoans for research and he caught a turritopsis dorini and he took it back to his little lab and he was observing it along with some other hydrozoans mm-hmm. when he noticed the turritopsis exhibiting some strange behavior and he was like dude what's going on <laughs> and it started to age backwards and i bet you anything he was like whoa or he was probably more like was which is what in German because he was German. So, uh, immortal jellies are super small. As I said, they're about the size of her pinky fingernail when full grown. And they usually only revert back to their little 
polyp baby selves when they're under extreme stress. So if they're really hungry, if they're starving, or if they're threatened by something, or if they get hurt, it's like they're like, whoa, their cell their cells undergo cellular transdifferation, where the cells basically transform into whatever is needed at the time. So they just go back to their little polyp self. So it's kind of like human stem cells, mm. if you stop to think about it. Mm. It's nuts. But this is also why scientists think these little immortal jellies are taking over the ocean, you guys. Because when they convert back to their little polyp selves, they can then, through asexual reproduction, create hundreds of themselves. Wow. Yeah. And so it's like they're starting to really – they're starting to be found all over the world, Mm. which is just a little bit crazy. Mm. So they're going to start eating them. Start eating them, yeah. Good luck with that. (laughs) But yeah, when threatened, they Benjamin button themselves back into babies, and then boom, you've got more jellies all over the <laughs> <Yeah>. world. <laughs> and they don't easily die. Like, they just keep growing and growing. There aren't many natural predators for these things. Mm. Like, who wants to eat a freaking jellyfish? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think I read somewhere that sometimes sea slugs will eat them. So it's like mm. they, they can die. They can die. So they're not immortal. They're not immortal. Mm. But they could be if they wanted. What? <laughs> <laughs> there's something kind of paradoxical about turning into a polyp that that's the weird thing to me is because a polyp is immobile they're they're stuck to the seafloor mm-hmm. so you would think if you were stressed out you'd be more inclined to like mature fast but instead they do the opposite and i guess it's because they can make hundreds of them so it's kind of like you know if i make it out of this <laughs> it's it's like, yeah. what's that obi-wan quote if you if you strike me down I'll become infinitely more powerful or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. That's what they do, man. These little jellies, they reproduce, and then there are tons of them. So I guess it's a way of preserving their genetic. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're cloning themselves. They are oh, yeah. cloning themselves. Yeah. So and- so maybe the, all of their memories are intact, too. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not worried since they don't have a brain, but dang, that was weird. There was a what weird. If all these there was came a weird, from one uh, jelly. There was a weird study actually that a jellyfish that blew my mind, where they put a red uh, buoy and a blue buoy in an enclosure with jellyfish. They don't have brains and they don't have eyes. No, but it was scared no. of the red one. Like it avoided it at all costs to a point where it went just went in the corner. And the, the scientists were they didn't have an explanation. They were like, "Why is it? How does it even know?" So yeah. It turns out it was just a strong wake in the <laughs> room, and it just pushed it. <laughs> so, why is the immortal jelly such a secret, you guys? Because you know this is Secrets of the Sea. Yeah. What is, our episode. What's the secret? Uh, because we don't know how it ages backwards. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> scientists are obs trying to figure this out. Though not many scientists are researching this, surprisingly. <laughs> Did you say obs? Obs. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, not many, not, there aren't many people who study hydroids. This is like, this is a Spider-Man villain ready to be made. Like they inject themselves with this and then they turn into an infant (laughs) and their wife and child are looking for them. But all they do is they find this child (laughs) roaming their house. (laughs) (laughs) Flipping jelly man. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, immortal jellyfish, they're difficult to take care of, number one. That's one of the reasons that not many scientists take on this research is because Mm. – and there's also – there's this thing called – I think it's called the Smalls Rule. Let me me find – I've got a little note in here. uh, How is it so hard to take care of? I mean, you just poke it and you get like 50 more and you're like, okay. No, there's there's (laughs) this Smalls Rule. I read in an article a marine sciences uh, professor 
named James Carlton credits Small's role as to why there is a lack of experts when it comes to like studying jellyfish and hydro- hydroids, I guess. Mm. Uh, Small's rule is that creatures that are larger typically get more attention. Yeah. Than oh, the right. Yeah. Boy, boy, you calm yourself, okay? I'm talking about the cute little Tortopsis Dorini. I'm not saying I agree. I'm just saying a general perception is yeah. bigger. Is better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not many people study them. And as I said a minute ago, they're very hard to take care of. Like, if you take them into a lab. Okay, this is one thing that I always think about when I think about jellyfish. Oh, <laughs> Do you guys remember when Koba Cocina was in Lexington? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, this was a restaurant that had a water, a, a, jellyfish a tank, tank in, in the, the middle, middle, and it just had jellyfish in it. It yeah. was so cool, but like, and I don't know if this is true. Maybe I dreamt this, but I feel like I remember hearing that one day they came back in and all the jellyfish were gone. No, you told me this. This is the true story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah, they went in and all the jellyfish were gone. They had just died and just like disappeared. Mm. Wait, wait, wait. Or they wait. had taken over the restaurant. When you said no, gone, you mean they weren't there? Oh. Yeah, yeah, they were just gone. They just kind of like disintegrated, I think, is what, what happened. Is that they just evaporated pretty much in the water. That... Or they escaped and took over the restaurant. Uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> they they, went but back they home. they replenished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they replenished the tank, and then when Coba Cocina closed, R.I.P. Coba, hmm? um, they donated all of them to the Newport Aquarium. I think so. We okay. could still go and see these jellyfish, you guys. Interesting. They're at the Newport Aquarium, which is where Alex and I got engaged. High five! Oh boy! Wow. Anyways, <laughs> back to this. But yeah, whenever I think about you know. They, those jellyfish at Kobo were left unattended for like hardly any time at all. And they just disappeared. They so all vanished. <laughs> it's, it's hard to take care of jellyfish mm-hmm. and to study them. Like they just require a lot of attention. Like you've got to make sure they have food. You got to do all these things for them. There is one scientist that I read about. His name is Shin Kubota. Mm. He's from Japan and he's been studying immortal jellies for years now with hopes of discovering how they age backwards, but caring for them is tedious and time consuming and he's like one of the only people that does it wow he spends at least three hours a day taking care of them in his lab and this i will say most of my research is from 2012 just because there's really not much information that's come out about this jellyfish Hmm. species in recent times i did find one article from last year which i'll tell you about in a second but um shin kubota he couldn't skip a day of taking care of these little jellyfish. Otherwise they would have died. They would have starved to death and just like disappeared. Interesting. Yeah. Doesn't sound like much of a scientist. So he can't make an automated automated, feeding machine. Well, no, whenever he traveled, cause he's, he's a a scientist. So he would go and give talks. He would bring them with him. Like a little, a little tank. I guess. I bet customs is a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But (laughs) he, uh, He's adorable. Like I love this little this little scientist, he's so adorable. Mm-hmm. He walks along the beach and takes little notes of all the sea life that's washed ashore. But he also writes a little jellyfish of the week column for his local newspaper. Like how adorable uh, is that? That's really cute. I just want to give him a hug. I, I kind of want to study great. these things now too. Like I'm kind of fired up. Not even they're, kidding. They're really cool. But mm. the most rejuvenations reported in a single jellyfish. James, can you guess what it is? Alex is reading my notes, so he can't uh, guess. No, I didn't read your notes. I didn't read it. 10,000. 10,000. Whoa, that's a lot of rejuvenations. <laughs> well, this is recorded, so there's uh, probably one out there that has had 10,000. Mm. Possibly. We don't know. But I don't know how many. 
I don't know. That's because you read it. I did. After you said I'd read it, I then did read it. I roll. <laughs> um, so Shin Kubota was able to get a Turritopsis dorini to rejuvenate 14 times. Wow. What happened after 14? For the 2019 article. And this was in japanforward.com. I don't know what happened after 14. Well, that, was t- mm. that was from last year. Maybe it was still going. Who knows? But he did. He would have to give the little jellyfish an ouchie in order to mm. have it age. Uh. He had to poke it with a little needle. Mm. Oh well, I feel bad because he seems like a nice guy, and I mm. like his jellyfish of the week column. I know I want to read his jellyfish of the week column. Now, do you think he has to double up on jellyfish? Like, hey, this is, or do you think he gives updates? Like, this is how Gerald is doing. <laughs> I don't. That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could find it, but. But anyways, that's the most recent information I could find, especially about Kubota. Mm-hmm. And his work was from 2019. So he's still looking into these things, obviously. Um, but scientists are obviously hoping to get a lot of information about these immortal jellies so that they can cure different types of diseases mm-hmm. and ailments, figure mm-hmm. out how to improve the human aging process, which a lot of scientists that I re- was reading about, because there are others that look into these, not just Kubota. He's just, he seems to me like he's just very devoted. Mm. But he he wants to look into the aging process. A lot of other scientists are like, that doesn't really have too many like practical applications. Mm. So they're looking more into it with, uh, with their perspective of like treating cancer or Parkinson's, mm. helping people who have lost or, you know, they've got mm. cancer. How can we fix this cell and revert it back to a normal healthy mm. cell? You know what I mean? Yeah, I can see like Alzheimer's applications. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of applications. But what if you gave it to <laughs> never mind. Yeah, <laughs> Alex, why don't you why don't you shut your mouth? Everything, um, <laughs> everything I'm thinking of involves turning something uh, any part of you into a baby version and then you're stuck with a baby like in a baby arm. Oh my god. Alex <laughs> Well, you know, it, that it, is it, not it makes my brain feel like it's collapsing in on itself when I think about what it means in terms of like the self. Because, okay, well, here's what I mean. If, if a person was like one of these jellyfish, right? You feel threatened, you turn into a baby, you then turn into a hundred babies, and then they all go their separate ways. Well, which one is you? <sighs> James. <laughs> the original. The original? James. The, you know, who knows? You're yeah, a copy but of the a, thing, uh, how do you keep track? Exactly. You're a copy of a copy a of a copy. Implant. Yeah, and you, need, and you put a little tag on it so that you know which <laughs> one's which. A the question is, tag. I mean, I know, I know it's a jellyfish. It doesn't really have any intelligence, but... Does it have intelligence? We just <laughs> said that we don't know. We it was able to tell colors without yeah, eyes. Yeah, that was a weird, weird test. So what if it knows itself? Mm. And he says, "I'm Gerald." Yeah. Well, even if it doesn't, it has a self. Except we don't know what that self is because of the weird way in which it reproduces. <sighs> it's nuts, man! Yeah. You guys, that's the immortal jellyfish. Nice. It's a it's a brain mm. teaser for real. Mm. Well, while you all took the route of being super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end the podcast on a high note. Yeah. I took one that's a little strange, a little weird, mm. but okay. also pretty funny. I'm ready. Um, so I actually wanted to tackle a ghost ship. Oh. Yes, but not one that's just mysteriously vanished and then suddenly appeared in front of a, a series of protagonists with like a tattered... Uh, sail, sail or something mm. horrifying Blowing like in the that. wind. Yeah. No, this one was actually discovered by ExxonMobil back in 2003. ExxonMobil? Yeah, it's already sank. It's been in the water for a while. And there, the, Exxon was laying some pipe 
<laughs> oh, I mean, oil pipe. Oh, the the oil God. pipeline. Okay. <laughs> this is this is where Alex's brain has been all day, James. <laughs> so they're they're about uh, they're laying some pipe. Oh, well, I didn't mean to do that one. Oh my Three miles God. offshore. <laughs> <laughs> Alex has got himself in fits, you guys. This is gonna be fun. Um, <laughs> they were they were drilling. Okay, they were drilling. Yeah, so they're 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 laying this oil pipeline about thirty miles away from the Mississippi River's mouth. Mm. <laughs> 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 Alex, you just read your freaking notes. <laughs> It's going to be 30 seconds of us laughing. Okay. Do you want me to read your notes for you? Are you going to be okay? I'll be alright. It's got to make it past my first sentence. (laughs) Alright, you guys. Start right here, Alex. So, alright. So, they... The people over at Exxon, they notify uh, some researchers over at Texas A&M that they found this, uh, <laughs> sorry, I saw you get <laughs> I saw, I heard like the little short burst of air that you were laughing. Just go, just go. Okay, so. It makes this really hard to edit, you know that. Well, you We get James laughing, we've got you laughing. Just a series of unfortunate words. All right. So they let these researchers over at... NOAA. Well, Texas A&M University and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they let them know about this wreckage, and they let them know that it's about three-quarters of a mile below sea level. So it's it's pretty deep. Mm. Pretty deep. But things kind of go weird from there. So, upon first viewing, from a distance at least, this is a 60-foot-long wooden sailing vessel. And it looks like it's from the early 1800s. That's an old sailing vessel. Yes, an old sailing vessel. And so, they wanted, obviously, to go deeper. (laughs) And see. And and see. And see more. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) What's the next? What's These the next? are the notes you took, right? <laughs> <laughs> you wrote them. So, <laughs> so, all right. So I'm done. I'm done laughing. Um, so that was at a glance, but when they try to get closer and retrieve any artifacts from the ships, is when things get really weird. And it was when they got really close. All these weird mishaps start to occur. And it made just retrieving anything almost impossible. So I'm going to cover three different incidences where things kind of go wrong. So the first one is they send a little robotic submarine down and it has all these problems. The hydraulics go, they just completely like blow. And then the docking mechanisms for the, uh, 
it says the docking mechanism at the end of the 5,000 foot long cable failed to engage. So it wasn't able to grab anything or latch on and like hold its position. Huh. And then it says it's electronics malfunctions. So like there's, they're using monitors obviously to see, but then they start blipping out. And they start getting grainy and really hard to see. Oh, uh, this is like a, a movie. Yeah, it's really weird. It's like they're like hitting like almost like uh, an electromagnetic bubble almost with all these weird mm. things that start to fritz. But when they finally get the thing down to the uh, the wreck, the sonar just completely stops working. And then mm. the system just shuts off and they reboot it. And then the camera keeps glitching and then they just find that they can't use anything. Hmm. It, yeah, <clears throat> CC's looking at me like, "Uh oh, is there is there is there a ghost?" So they send another sub down, and all the same things start happening. Except, and even their little robotic arm that goes to grab an artifact just completely stops. They said that one of the researchers by the name of Brett A. Fano, Fanoof, 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 he told the New York Times in an article that the number of Unusual malfunctions were the result of, essentially said, there's bad voodoo out there. Everything that can go wrong has. Yeah. So, eventually, they were able to send out a vessel that was able to identify a hand-nailed copper plating, which just meant that this copper plating was typically used in the 17, late 1700s, early 1800s to prevent mm. pests and stuff like that from getting in. Also, it was like a shielding. Yeah. Hmm. And so that was the only thing that they were able to take from the ship was this little thing of copper plating. They're like, mm. hey, this is, this is what we got. And then they were able to determine from that that this may have been a victim of the Battle of New Orleans in 1812. Ooh. It's pretty old. But that's about as much as they got because their sub quit working. So the next group that went out was the, a Navy research vessel called the NR-1. And as soon as the research vessel was put into the water, it malfunctioned. And it just com- it completely loses control. And its tether to the ship gets caught in the ship's propellers and it gets swung back into the ship and absolutely obliterated. Ooh. <laughs> it just completely destroys it. Well, they tried to get another one down there. And maybe even, you know, pick up some of the pieces from the other one that they destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes down and it grabs an artifact. But on the way up, its arm quits working. And it drops the artifact that they grabbed. (laughs) And apparently the researchers were devastated. They said they spent two days looking for this artifact that it dropped. (laughs) And they could not find it. (laughs) Oh my god. Can you imagine the heartbreak? Yeah. (laughs) And then the third and horrible expedition... Uh, was done by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that we talked yeah, about we've earlier. Yeah, we talked about them before, yeah. Yeah. And they also experienced <laughs> several freak accidents. So as soon as they got ready to leave the port to go to their destination, they were forced to abort because the propeller got damaged by a piece of just floating debris. Mm. And so they had to turn back around 
they got another propeller, <laughs> and this one locked up on them. So they had to turn back around and go back. Jeez. And so while this was going on, uh, it says a group of government researchers uh, offered to stop by the wreck uh, while Noah was doing their thing, trying to fix all their ships. Well, when they stopped by there, they had a prop shaft break. And essentially, this pro- when this prop shaft broke, not only did it go through the ship and, oh my and flood the engine room, it also damaged their research vessel as well. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. Man. This, is, this is spooky. This is like the Flying Dutchman from SpongeBob is real or that's something. What, that's seriously, that's <laughs> what I'm right. thinking about. Like, there's definitely yeah. a ghost on that ship. And then... One more time. <laughs> the next time a rover was put in the water to go and examine the wreck, leaks started going through the sub and it shorted oh everything out. <laughs> well, we talked about underwater UFOs. You know what? Mm-hmm. If I was an alien and I didn't want to get discovered by people, I would disguise it as an old shipwreck and then you do stuff to prevent discovery. Just Ooh. James, <laughs> that is an interesting idea. Yeah, that is a, that's a good idea. But, yeah, I mean, the, to this day, no one has gotten down there to grab anything except for that one little piece of copper. One little piece of copper. That's the only thing anyone's been able to get off of that thing. <laughs> and everyone else oh, has had man. everything go wrong. Uh, dang. Quasar, the, the humans are getting too close. Give them a copper plate. <laughs> Maybe they'll go away. Yeah. Good lord, yeah. Alex. You know, Alex told me that he was going to talk about a cursed shipwreck, but and honestly, the first thing that I thought in my brain was the Flying Dutchman from SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah. But like, mm-hmm. legit, that's what it sounds like. I know, right? It's just so weird that everything goes wrong around this thing. If I if yeah. that had happened to me, I'd be like, I would, I would be like. The old woman who lives in the little lighthouse yeah. nearby, and people would be like, "Oh, I'm going to go look at the old uh, Battle of New Orleans ship," and be like, "No, don't go. No one can go down there. <laughs> Save yourself and oh, your electronic rover." <laughs> oh, yeah. good lord! Yeah, it's it's odd, and it's weird because you know no other. Viking ship in that era, not a Viking. It's Viking. not a Viking. I, for some reason, whenever I saw the pictures, I was like Viking ship, you know, <laughs> Viking ship. <laughs> but all the other wrecks in the area don't have this problem. This is exclusive. That's because, as James ship. said, it's an alien. Yep, nope. it's an alien spaceship. Yep, nope. it's the lizard I'm people headquarters. Fact. What if it is the door to Atlantis? <laughs> you go through it, and then you're in <laughs> Atlantis, and they're like, "Listen." Nice. They're not ready for this jelly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right, you guys. That was fun. That was Secrets of the Sea. Yeah. 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 Thanks again, Nick, you, for this, uh, the topic. And I had it. That was fun. We could do this again because yeah, there were could. some pretty cool things out there. There were a lot of other topics yeah. that I was looking at, and I was like, oh, I could talk about this. And then I was like, nope, the immortal jellyfish is where my heart is at today. <laughs> but... Alex, your podcast has been starting to grow a lot. Your other yes. one, Monsters vs. Men. Monsters vs. Men. With we're, Mr. Eric Neely. Yeah, we're, we're currently doing a series on all Godzilla movies. We've still got a couple months to go. But mm. after that, we're going to be tackling some other giant monster movies. Yeah. Nice. So yeah. 
if it, listener, if you're into movies and you like Godzilla, it's a good podcast to listen to. I know we've mentioned it before, but that being said, the 13th floor has started to grow a lot. Yes. Um, and so thank you so much. If you're a brand new listener, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you've been around and listened to a couple episodes, thank you for continuing. But we are curious. We want to know where people have found the 13th Floor podcast. Spoken to a few of you. For those of you who gave gave answers, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. But, yeah, if you want to let us know how you found the 13th Floor podcast, we're just really interested in learning. Hmm. So email your, your answers to us at 13thfloorpodcast at gmail.com. That is the number one, the number three, thfloorpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again, everybody. Yes. And also, yeah. our music is Signal by Grant Cook. You can find his music on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. And now we're going to draw, draw next week's topic. Next week's topic out of the vase. Everybody wants to know what we're talking about. Oh, wow. You should do, Today? We should create a theme song. Yeah. All right. Ooh. And this topic was actually suggested to us by... One of the listeners that I spoke to about where I found our podcast at device 96. I know that we've done another episode from him. I can't remember specifically what it was, but we're next week. We're going to be talking about dreams. Dream, 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 dream. Okay. All right. There we go. Will that be our musical episode? To make it seem more dreamlike? You know, I actually am a pretty good singer. (laughs) Just kidding. Well, you and me both sang this episode. The only one that hasn't sung is uh, James. Yeah, James. What gives? Bum, 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 bum. All right. There's there's James. (laughs) He decided to go a little bit more classical route. Yeah, more of a percussion instrument than uh, singing, but I'll take it. What did you sing? Uh... Arms of the Angels. Oh, yeah. Arms of the Angels. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there you go, you guys. That's our episode for today. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, Or anywhere you listen to podcasts. So, thanks again for listening. And until next time, you guys, we hope that you can keep keep it straight. straight.